Good morning, church. It is wonderful to be with you. If you are just visiting and joining us, my name is Dean Barham, and I'm honored to serve as the lead minister of this church. And uh, I want to say a special happy Mother's Day to all of those to whom uh, that uh, beloved title applies. Um, I also say this, if you've been around me much when we've had days like Mother's Day or Father's Day, I always say this too. I also recognize that as we celebrate those who have blessed us as great mothers, we also recognize for everybody this isn't always a great day. So I just want to I want to recognize that and let you know that we are with you in that moment. It, this could be a hard day for any number of reasons. For some, like those I deeply care about and love, this is a hard day because uh, their mothers are no longer with us. Uh, they've already gone on to be with Jesus. For others, some of you here might have a hard time celebrating Mother's Day because the one who biologically has that title in your life did not live up to God's intent for that role. And we want to recognize that, and we want to grieve with you through that. I think it's significant because um, we come here to gather to worship. We recognize that the God that we worship is the ultimate fulfillment of those roles that we seek out. And so it's easy, obviously, God reveals himself as God the Father to, to come to him as the perfect role model as Father. We'll even see some of the passages today, though, that remind us that God is not gendered. God loves us as the perfect, nurturing, maternal influence as well. And so uh, I, I pray that that is your experience, that you come to him in that way. I just want you to know whether you're celebrating today or whether today is difficult for you, uh, we are here with you and we love you. We've been doing this little series. We've been asking the question, so what? Because we are thinking about the resurrection of Jesus, and it's easy to think, wow, that, that was a cool historical moment back then. It might mean something later on, but does it matter for us right here and right now in everyday life? And we've been looking at stories, episodes in the lives of the early church in the book of Acts, just kind of jumping around in there a little bit, looking at episodes of people who show us what the significance of resurrection actually is. And this text today is one of my favorite. It's a picture of Paul engaging in the Greek community. Uh, these are people that did not grow up hearing the Bible, hearing the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And how does God witness to resurrection in a different environment like that? So if you have your Bibles or your devices, we're going to read that passage in Acts 17. We're going to get the background in a couple of verses. We'll skip around and then the meat of it will start in verse 22. But I'm going to start in verse 16. This is the word of the Lord. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Skip to verse 19. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, the Athenian Supreme Court, so to speak, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. Skip down to verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you were ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. 
And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he gives himself, everyone, life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out for them the appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of them, your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design or skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, I pray as the psalmist does centuries ago. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I want you to know that lives, communities, even worlds can be changed by those who have the courage to actually engage what is right in front of them. Whole communities, people, even, even parts of the world can be totally transformed. But people have the courage to actually just engage what is right around them the whole time. By the way, like it is for Paul here, that's not always easy. It can be a challenge sometimes. And on this particular Sunday, as we think about Mother's Day, I'm reminded of the courage of my own mother. She served Jesus for decades. Some of those have been joyful and relatively straightforward. Others have been really difficult. I know for the, over the first 20 years or so of their marriage, my father was not a Christian. He was not a follower of Jesus in any way. And in fact, he actively opposed my mom taking my older brother, who was the only child at that time early in their marriage, he actively opposed her even taking him to church. She would tell me the stories when my brother was little and she would try to take him to church. My dad would say, you're not taking my son to that church. And sometimes the way that my mom stood up and engaged this difficulty was creatively. She told the story of sometimes on a Saturday night what she would do, she would take my brother's Sunday clothes and she would hide them under the couch and get up really early and she would stuff Cheerios in his mouth to keep him quiet <laughs> so it wouldn't wake dad up. She'd dress him and she'd leave early. But you know, that would only work for so long. There would come a time where there would be a showdown, so to speak. And there was a day my father looked at my mom and said, you're not taking our son to church. Heard the stories about this later. I didn't know for a long time. But mom said, look, I wouldn't divorce you for almost any reason in the world. But if you try to keep me from worshiping my God and taking our son to church, I will leave you right now. My dad would grouse a little bit and he would grumble a little bit, but he never brought that up again. <laughs> my dad went on to be with Jesus when he was just 45 years old. But I'll tell you, seven years before he died, he gave his life fully and passionately to Jesus Christ. And I didn't realize, I didn't learn this until after he died. And I was talking with a minister who knew him, who asked my father, what was it? That got through to you. What, why did you finally want to pursue Jesus, give your life to him? And he, I don't think, said this to anybody else. He certainly wouldn't say this to my mom. 
They would ask him, you know, was it this preacher who studied, got great, great Bible studies and all that? He said, no, it was that woman. <laughs> this woman that I married. He said there was something about her conviction and her commitment. I had to find out what it is about this Jesus and that spiritual community called the church that made her want to stand up like that. Entire worlds and lives and people can be changed when the people of God have the courage to engage what is right in front of them. And I think that's part of what the so what is of, of this resurrection exploration we're looking at. Do you realize we have the story of a man that is staggering? Human being who happens also to be God who died and did not stay dead. And that story is so compelling. And that man is so powerful that it should inspire us to actually step into the world around us, to engage the world around us even more. But you know this, don't you? Far too many churches, it's not this one, but far too many churches and Christians actually step back from the world and they disengage and they hide in their little Christian bubbles at best. And then there are some churches and some Christians that spend most of their time judging and attacking those on the outside. It's one of the things I love about this story here. We see in the life of Paul and the early resurrection community a better way of engaging the culture that does not know Jesus around him. And maybe we can learn something about how to make a greater impact in our own lives. The first thing that I noticed, and I think this is so important, is the approach that Paul had. I also believe Jesus modeled this as well. Is Paul engaged in the intersections of his world. I want you to really think about this. He engaged, he stepped into those intersection places in his world. You see this right off the bat in the text. In verse 17, it says, Paul engaged in two places. He reasoned, he shared the story, he shared the scripture, he debated, he had conversations in two places. The synagogue, synagogue and the marketplace. Now, if you get this, you'll see how powerful this approach is because it's really an intentional movement that he does. Did you know that the synagogue for the Jewish community and the marketplace for the Greek community are actually the same place? When you think about this, that's often, it took me a while to realize this, I often would hear the word synagogue and I think church. And there's a sense in which it is the case. They would go there for Bible study and all that. But understand, synagogue is to the Jewish community what the marketplace was to the Greek community. In fact, the Greek, in which the New Testament was written, the Greek word at the root of both is exactly the same. You can hear it in the Jewish word, synagogue. Syn means to be together, and the marketplace in Greek was called the agora. Do you hear that? Synagogue. It's the same thing. The agora was the gathering place. That's what the word means, the gathering place of the community. And so the synagogue was the gathering place. It wasn't just church, hear me. For the Jewish community, the synagogue was the social and cultural center of Jewish life. You get that? And the agora, the marketplace, for the Greeks was the same thing. It was the place of commerce. It was the place of social interaction. It was the center of cultural life. And what Paul does is he goes into the intersections. And that's his practice. He engages there. In fact, I think it's verse 4 in, earlier on in the chapter. It says this. It said Paul would start. Remember, he's a missionary to the Gentiles. But he always started in the synagogue. And here are these words. As was his custom. 
That may sound familiar if you remember a series we did a long time ago. We called it CrossFit. And we looked at the practices and the habits and the customs of Jesus. And it says in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus went to the synagogue, guess how? As was his custom. Paul learned it from Jesus. He said, I'm going to go to the gathering places of the Jewish community. And then they'd kick him out of the synagogue, so where would he go? He'd go to the gathering places of the Greek community. Isn't that powerful? Here's the point. Paul and Jesus and the followers of Jesus today should step into those intersecting places in our world. Here's a great application already of this sermon. Ask the Holy Spirit to identify you, for you. Open your eyes. Have conversations about this. What is the agora? What are the meeting gathering places in Bryan College Station? You know, talk about it. Just dream about that a little bit. If you talk about it for any length of time, I'm convinced you will come to this conclusion. You're already there. You're already there. So here's the question. Are we going to be like Jesus and Paul and go to those intersecting points in our community with purpose and intention? See, we need poets and we need painters and we need teachers and we need lawyers and we need musicians and we need um, people that are stocking shelves at HEB and we need folks that are cramming into the stadium at Kyle Field and we need parents on the playground, all of whom are so moved by the resurrection of Jesus that they are going with purpose and intentionality into those intersecting places. Now notice what Paul does in his intersection here. Even before Paul says a word, I love that he just takes it all in. What does it say in verse 16? He said, I was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols, full of empty things that they were pursuing. I was greatly distressed. Hear me, this is enormous. He wasn't angry. He wasn't judgmental towards them. He wasn't berating them. He was hurting for them because they didn't know the resurrected Lord of life. And I'm convinced the reason that he had that distress is because he had been there himself. And he hurt for them. By the way, he didn't make that up on his own either. He learned that from Jesus. Told you there are passages in the New and the Old Testament that uses maternal imagery for God that shows his heart in that way. One of the classic ones is this one in Luke chapter 13, verse 34. Listen to the heart of Jesus. And again, I think Paul's modeling that here. He's looking over the city of Jerusalem that's about to execute him. And he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often have I longed to gather you? How I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. And Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem because he longed to pull them in and nurture them and they wouldn't have any of it. I remember this week, it was Tuesday, and I was studying, I was writing this part of the passage and I put my head down on the desk and I'm like, God, I am so far from this. I'm just confessing you. I need God's heart to be distressed and hurt of the people that are missing it. And I was about to go out to lunch with one of our shepherds, Brian Casey. And on the way, I just prayed, God, can you make this a little, just today, a little bit more of my heart and my practice. We're dri I'm driving to meet him at Cooper's. I said, can you give me just some some kind of outward outreach in this moment. And one of the things that me and some of my friends will practice, somebody taught me, is that, that maybe the, at least we can do is pray for the people who serve us. 
It was so great, we got into Cooper's, and sure enough, one of our AFC students was there. And so I asked him what we could pray for him about. Of course, exams was part of it, but also his mother had just gotten a new job, and this Mother's Day weekend coming up. So we prayed about that, and we met a young lady named Josie. And we prayed for her, and, and her, one of her dear friend's father was battling cancer. And he, it was so great. You can do this. Here's a great way to do it. Just bait your friends. So I was there with Brian Case, one of our shepherds. If you've never heard him pray, beautiful prayers. I love his heart. And so we're standing in line, and, and I said to Josie, I said, look, um, this is one of my buddies named Brian. He prays the most beautiful prayers in the world, and I'm going to ask him to pray when we sit down to eat. So if there's anything he can pray for you about, it was great. But I'm telling you, listen, it was so beautiful to see the heart of one of our shepherds. Just linked, we didn't rush to the meal. He just prayed over Michael and, and Josie in that moment. It was so beautiful. Two people he had never met before. What does it look like to have that heart? Can we ask God to have a longing to actually engage the intersections of our lives and not just rush past it? So a friend of mine, you'll see a picture of him later. His name is Shadanka Johnson. He, he is an inspiration to me. I've talked about him, I think, a little bit before. He is a, a minister and a church planter and a missionary in Sierra Leone, Africa. And he's in a place where there is violent opposition to the gospel of Jesus. And he has this kind of heart. He prays and he has a team of people that will pray over every area they're going to go. And when they feel released and called by the Holy Spirit, they go there even if it is dangerous. And you talk about engaging in the intersection. There was one moment he talked about, one of his most memorable moments in life. He went in, he was talking to a man who was part of the military police there, is a way to think about it. And he was known for executing people for just talking about Jesus. And sure enough, Shadanka was talking about Jesus, and so this guy arrests him. And Shadanka's telling the story of how he tied his hands around his back and his fingers are interlocked over his neck. I don't want to be scary to the kids. Shadanka told me the story, okay? So I'm going to kind of, you know, not bury the lead here. More on this later. But so in this moment, he didn't know that. He had his hands behind his back, and he is terrified there. And, and the military policeman, he pulls out his gun, and he says, look, I'm, I'm going to kill you here. I'm going to kill you today. And when you die, you go tell your God that I killed you because he cannot save you now. That's what he said. And here's what moved me. In that moment, guess what Shadanka did? He prayed. And he prayed to God and he said, God, if this is the last moment that I live, I'm ready. But can you give me boldness to talk to him about you? Isn't that great? You ready for this? Love this prayer. This is what he prayed in this moment. He didn't know whether he was going to live or die. This is, what he, this is what he prayed. God, give me just one more. Can you give me one more person to talk to about you? Now, I'm going to put a peg in that. We're going to come back to that story in a moment. But I want you just to hear that prayer for a moment. Hear his heart, his passion to actually engage in the intersections of his world. Now, for most of us, it will not endanger our lives to engage the community around us or the worlds of the people around us. But are we willing to step into those intersections and be open? Second movement of Paul's witnesses here is really powerful to me. His transforming contact starts when he sees what is already there. Did you notice this? He sees what is already present in that moment. Verses 22 and 23. 
Read this, and, and, and as I read this, listen for the language of vision and sight. Verse 22, he said, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I saw this altar to an unknown God. More on that altar in a moment. But I love what Paul does. He starts, listen to this, because so many Christians don't do this. He starts by seeing what's already there and affirming what is good. Can we just see that? This is enormous. There's a lot of, this is a pagan culture. But he starts by saying, man, you're really religious. I see an attempt to worship all over the place. Do you know, even secular sources will tell us about this. The Athenians were rabid worshipers. They worshipped anybody, everything. Tried to cover all the bases. Paul says, I'm going to start by affirming that. I think this is powerful. We talked about this before. Let me remind you of a really important statement Jesus made a long time ago. This is what he said. My Father, God, is always working. God is always working. Working. So anytime you step into an intersection in our world, you can be confident of one thing. God is doing something there. And Paul shows up and he waits and he looks long enough to see where God is already working. A friend of mine named Joan I used to work with talked about a mission trip to South America that she and a group of folks took one time. And they were going there to bring Jesus to this little village in South America. And she remembers when they pulled in, there was some kind of makeshift sign at the beginning of the village, and there was a verse or something, and there was some kind of honoring the name of Jesus. And she said, it hit me in that moment, something that was a really important principle for me to remember the rest of my life. She said, we came there to bring Jesus to this village, only to realize he was already there. Listen, when you go as a witness to the resurrected Christ, listen to me, you don't ever have to bring Jesus anywhere. He's already there. Can we pray for the eyes to see where God is already working? And we start in that place. doesn't mean everything's right. But you start by affirming the things that are right and are good. God, give us eyes to step into the intersections and then see what he's already doing and where he's already working. But the heart of Paul's witness in this place is when he gets to this place, he engages, so simple, but I call it meaningful God talk. <laughs> he engages in meaningful God talk. Now listen, he spent time listening, looking, being quiet for a long time before he speaks. But when he speaks, he engages in a conversation about the creator of the universe and ultimately his resurrected son, but he does it meaningfully to them. Listen, this is so important. How is it meaningful to them? I, I think about it this way. He speaks to them in their language and he speaks to them about their need. Now, he had to listen long enough to get that. But listen to this. This is really important. He speaks in their language and he speaks the gospel to their need. Let's think about the first part of that for a moment. You heard and read, and you can kind of skim over. I encourage you to go skim over that text real quick. And think about this. How many scriptures does Paul quote in his address to the Athenian Supreme Court here? Because he's given basically a sermon, an address here. He's witnessing. Does anybody know? Can anybody guess? It's a trick question, by the way. I'm helping you out. How many scriptures does Paul quote in this address to the Greek folks? Anybody bold? How many scriptures? 
Zero. He does quote a couple things. This is really interesting. He does quote two things. First thing he quotes is a Stoic philosopher. We are the offspring of God. He quotes a Stoic philosopher, and he quotes a Greek poet. Now listen to me. Epimenides writes a poem that says, In him we live and move and have our being. But are you ready? Can you guess who Epimenides was writing that poem about in Greek culture? To a god named Zeus. Now just take this in for a moment. Paul's sermon text is a Stoic philosopher and a poet writing about Zeus. How would you feel if I came in on a Sunday morning, I preached for 30 minutes, my only sermon text was from the Quran? Might raise a little hair or two here. Now here's the thing. I'm not going to do that in this culture here. Go back and look at Acts chapter 13 and read that sermon. See how different it is from this one. He's quoting scripture all over the place. Why? Because he's talking to Jews who have read those authorities their whole lives. But these great pagans haven't read these stories. That's not their authority. So he starts with their language and moves it to Jesus. So no, I wouldn't come in here and do that. But I remember I had the honor of doing a wedding for a couple of my friends one time. They were both Christians, but she asked me, is there a way without violating anything with what we believe in Christianity to honor my mother who was a Buddhist? Now, the old me would say, no way. I'm shoving Jesus right down your throat. But no, what I did is I didn't know all the Buddhist writings or anything like that, but I worked really hard in the preparation of that to find some writing about love. And I found something and I quoted it in the wedding. Now, that's not where it ended. I moved to a place where the Bible says this is how we know what love is. (laughs) Because Jesus laid down his life for us. Right? But in Paul's setting, isn't it brilliant that he says, I'm going to use your language to speak and connect with you. He also speaks to their need. He stayed there long enough to know the hole in their story. To know the longing in their heart. Did you catch it? When he was walking around, he was distressed to see all the idols, but then he caught this one idol in particular. It was written to an unknown God. Do you know what's underneath that inscription? Do you feel it for a moment? Here's the thing. Paul caught it. You know what's underneath that inscription and that altar? Fear. Because they worship everybody and everything. But you know part of them is saying, what if we missed one? And they're afraid. They want to get it right. And Paul steps into that and says, you did miss one. Let me tell you about him. Isn't that awesome? Let's be honest. Sometimes Christians have a whole lot of answers for questions that nobody in the world are asking. So what if we step into the language of our culture and speak the gospel, which answers every need every human heart has? Now, don't get me wrong. Gospel doesn't get to drive the bus. I mean, sorry, yes, it does. The culture doesn't get to drive the bus. But I'm convinced if we stay in people's stories long enough, you will see the longing there that only the gospel can answer. Let me give you a picture of this. It's so simple. It is so simple. But if we could get this ingrained, not just a sermon port, into the rhythm of what it means to witness. Learned it from a guy named James McClendon. He writes a book called Witness. And he said, anytime the gospel engages the culture, it says three words to it. Now often, we've only done word number two. But he said three words. The first one, and see how this is exactly what Paul does. The first word when we engage the culture around us is yes. Start with affirmation. Where is the Lord working? 
Affirm what is good and true. This is what we know. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. Peter tells us that. And John 1 says that, that God, anything that is working in God, anything that is good in God, anything that is good in this world came from Jesus. And they may not know us from Jesus, but it's Jesus. So I'm going to affirm where Jesus shows up. Then, yes, there is a place when we're engaging culture. And let's be really careful with this one. There's a place to say no. But I love the way he put it. Listen, we humbly challenge where it is harmfully wrong. Both are important. Humble, we're not high and mighty, and where it's harmful. Listen, it is not our job as Christians to go find all the ways the world's got it wrong and correct them all. But there are places to stand up where it is abusive and destructive and harmful, and we speak into that. Does that make sense? Paul only, he picked and chose. He said, God's not in a building, and it doesn't make any sense to make him look like us. He stepped into that and challenged it a little bit. But here's my favorite part. More. The gospel says more. There is something bigger than you ever dreamed. There's a vision bigger than you ever dreamed. There's a hole in your heart deeper than you ever knew. And the gospel answers all of that. Tell the gospel story in the place in a person's heart, culture, or world that nothing else can answer but the gospel. That's exactly what Paul did. Isn't that powerful? And when we do that, here's the cool thing. We didn't read this part, but skim the last couple verses of the chapter, and you will find the last movement of our discipleship pathway. There is a ripple effect of the gospel being preached by these people. In fact, every story we've looked at in in, in the book of Acts, they're just getting them telling the story, and the ripple effect is huge. Peter did it, 3,000 people, right? Stephen testifies, and it plants a seed in this guy, Paul, who is now testifying. You know what it says at the end of the chapter? It says some people blew him off. Some people thought, well, that's interesting. We'll talk about it more later. Casual dismissal. But he said, some people got it. Some Jews believed. Look at the beginning of chapter 17. It says the same thing. Some Jews believed. Some Greek men believed. Powerful folks. And it says quite a few prominent women in the Greek culture did too. In fact, they name a couple names at the end of this chapter, right after the text we read. A guy named Dionysius. Here's a way to translate. He was a member of the Areopagus, which means he was like a Supreme Court justice. He came to Christ. And we're told in the first century, there is a guy who becomes the chief elder. They called him bishop back then, but chief elder in that whole region. Guess what his name was? Dionysius. Don't know if it's the same guy or not, but it wouldn't surprise me. And there's a lady there, too, that that the scholars will tell us becomes a prominent leader in the earlier community. And Paul points it out. Powerful men, powerful leaders that are women in that community, Jews and Greeks, come to Jesus and the ripple effect is enormous. So what does it look like for us? People are willing to step into the intersection, look, listen, and then speak something meaningfully of God in our world. Well, I think it still happens today. I want to go back to that story. We'll finish with the rest of the story with Shadanka. Remember, the guys, Shadanka... This military guy who executes people for talking about Jesus has said, you're going to die. And he prays, God, just give me, give me one more. And give me boldness. So in Holy Spirit-inspired boldness, he turns to this militia who is about, he's holding a gun to him, and he says, can you give me five minutes? Just one, five minutes. The guy says, you're dead anyway, go ahead. What's, you know, doesn't, doesn't hurt me. And so he starts talking to him. And he says, look, here's the thing. If I die in a moment... I know where I'm going to be, but you're lost. <laughs> the rest of the dude's got a gun to his head, but you're lost. And listen, this is what I love. He's not just picking on. 
He said, I'll die. I'll be all right. And he said, but listen, I want you to know after you kill me, the Jesus that I know will forgive you. If you kill me, the Jesus I know will forgive you. And I want you to know him so much. And the whole time Shadanka's talking, those five minutes, he just drops his gun. And finally, he said his child was around. If I, if I remember the story correctly, the militiaman's child was around. And he looked at his child, and he looked at his friends around, and he said, um, untie this guy and take him away. This man is not normal, is what he says. <laughs> the militiaman found him three weeks later, looked for him, found him under a mango tree. And he came up to Shadanka, and he said, can we be friends? And they engage in a friendship and they engage in conversation in everyday life and they engage in something some of you are studying and using this approach because I got it from this guy. It's called Discovery Bible Study. And they started asking questions. Who is God? Who are we? How can I obey him even if I don't believe in him yet? And is there anybody I can share him with? And over the course of those conversations, that militia man gave his life to Jesus and Shadaka baptized him into Christ. And he didn't leave his job. Guess who is a disciple making disciples in the middle of the militia in Sierra Leone, Africa? And the whole region has been transformed because one man was willing to stand up and engage in the intersection of his culture. So what about you and me? What might God stand ready to transform in our lives if we don't just kind of skate through life, but we let the power of the resurrected Christ open our eyes to opportunities to speak meaningfully about God and His resurrected Son in our world? Father God, that is our prayer. You didn't call us just to sit here safely in our communities and celebrate and worship. We do that. But you propel us to engage a world that is longing to know the man that would forgive us, even if we kill him. Give us a heart and passion for the people that are around us every single day. To listen, to care, to look for the ways you're already showing up. And then in the guidance of your Holy Spirit, to speak meaningfully about our God and his resurrected son. We pray that in the glorious name of Jesus.